0: Welcome to the Political Party Pooper Playbook. And if you thought all we did was sit around thinking of ways to poop on empty-suit politicians, well, you'd be half right. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Pooper Playbook. This is Episode 3, Part 2 of the Reich Commentaries, or Educating Robert Reich Part 2. A note to the listener, I really hate listening to my voice on audio. I know everybody says that, but I really do have a voice for newsprint. However, I discovered in editing my last podcast that my stuff sounds 100% better when played at 1.25 speed. It's much more engaging for some reason. It sounds like Ben Shapiro with an earthier voice. Uh, do with it, uh, do with that knowledge as you will. In my last P4B podcast, I set up this series and spent a bit of time defining the motivation behind the article, America's Growing Zero-Sum Economy, subtitle, it's also where you find the nation's ultra-rich, this is by Robert Reich on Substack. My first point was a takedown of the Churlish and Class Envy subtitle. The previous episode will give you a flavor for the series. There'll be a button you can push if you want to go back to that first. Today, I will dispense with the title itself. The first and recurring rebuttal to that is this. There is no such thing as a zero-sum economy. This term is much like the quote, trickle-down economics. Uh, It's a contrived uh, term created by the left. It invents a problem to use as a cudgel with which to attack clear-minded, productive, free-market people. That's where the power of the left comes from, emotional outbursts and silly populist populist notions. I didn't use the example of trickle-down economics without a reason. I used it as a historical reference to demonstrate how the left always gets economic issues wrong. And I'm 100% confident Rice used the term frequently during the Reagan years to prevent the 30 years of economic expansion we experienced thanks to the Gipper. Now, he wasn't in his own mind trying to prevent any expansion. He was just busy being wrong and promoting his ivory tower political narrative. That's what happens when you get into a money gunfight with a broken political knife. When Reagan brought Art Laffer and the Laffer curve in to support his tax cut proposals, the left immediately carted out the trickle-down economics. That's in quotes again. But as Thomas Sowell points out, In an article on the subject, no one in the administration, no one handling the supply-side argument, said the economy would benefit by money trickling down from rich to poor. That was never any basis for their efforts. No one ever used the term. The left knew this, but they claimed that the Laffer curve was just that, and supply-side economics was voodoo economics. What they were intentionally overlooking was supply side that even should be in quotes at this point, economics is precisely how an economy works. History proves this. The power and control lefties see in central planning, which people like Russia espouse is where economies go to die. The actual effect of Reagan's cuts, as with JFK's and Trump's is a certain and undeniable ripple effect that happens across an entire economy. The effect mimics perfectly the ripples in a still pond when you throw a pebble in it. The ripples don't get to a certain spot and stop. And they don't just stay on the rich side of the pond. They eventually reach the entire pond. An economy is stones of all sizes being thrown into the pond without let up. What a low tax rate and free market always does is allow for more people to throw more stones in the pond, and it allows the ripples to reach everywhere in the economy. I know there will be silly pushback on this historical reference. Uh, I therefore provide the following, and now you'll in the text below the recording, you'll find a link to the Kennedy tax cuts, which went through with full support and had all the full effect, and the Reagan tax cut, which were severely skewed almost as soon as they went through. I would argue that people like Wessel in the the Reagan tax cut article were thinking zero-sum nonsense, just like Reich. Uh, Growth throughout the 80s was nothing short of spectacular. Confidence in the economy was astounding. Everybody was throwing stones in the pond and getting wet. What went wrong with Reagan's tax cut was twofold. First, after putting a responsible economy into effect, Reagan and Congress went on a spending bonanza, and the gipper started to get cold feet. He signed little increases back into the code instead of letting the inevitable growth occur. And the spending did what all spending does. It created a lag on an otherwise astonishing economic machine. And despite the needless and damaging spending, the U.S. went on a long and successful growth curve. Left in place, the federal government would have seen steady growth, but the inexcusable spending ruined it. If you expand an economy, money does pour into the treasury. But if you outstrip the growth with spending, then yes, revenue as a percentage of GDP will shrink. And anybody who says Trump's cuts weren't a social good, as you'll see Reich referred to later, you're just not living in reality. His policies put the economy on an overdrive twice. Then Brandon killed it all with his social good projects and his massive executive overreach. The tip-off for me that David Wessel was thinking in zero-sum terms was his use of the terms winners and losers the wine of central planners. The zero-sum nonsense in Russia's article and everywhere in recent history is meant to mean that the economy is a finite thing. If I win, you lose. If Congress, Congress cuts taxes, we get less government reg- revenue. Period. And if I don't get a personal benefit from a transaction that you carried out with someone else, that means you did a zero-sum transaction. All of... Those statements are only hypothetically true when you're operating in a centrally planned dystopian economy. None are true in a free market. A slowly dying entity in the United States, by the way. And Reich repeats the phrase again and again in his piece. And here's where he tips his central planning hand. You might think a rational society would heavily tax zero-sum work while subsidizing work that generates lots of social good. Social good. (laughs) Not only is Reich stuck in this historically failed concept, it emerges in almost everything he writes. He and others like him, tens of thousands of them, are teaching this lunacy to our kids. Doubt me not, almost all legal financial transactions result in social good. They fuel the process by which we improve our lives. The social good Reich is clearly espousing in his substack is the kind of social good politicians the media and ivory tower do-gooders want to saddle us with. Saddle here is the perfect word. The left wants to use their social good as a means of control. It is ultimately demeaning and the more people benefit from this benefit in quotes from this social good, the less likely it is we will ever be able to get out from under the government. This is almost exactly the same kind of social good Mexican cartels employ to keep them in business. They make small je- gestures and give gifts to people in their regions to keep them quiet. The idea is if El Scamo, the narco dude, builds a little school in your village, or hands out Christmas gifts for your kids, you might develop a little bit of amnesia when the federales come sniffing around. Accordingly, the left, and not a small number of GOP political wars, are enriching themselves at our expense. To continue doing that, they are working to control every aspect of our lives. ESG much? To smooth their way, and to do More of that, they give you things. The more you take, the more they'll give. Every year, they increase the amount of other people's wealth, which you can enjoy by keeping them in office. Talk about creating winners and losers. And, as we've proven in the endless phony war on poverty we've been fighting, quotes since LBJ, no real good comes from the social good people like Reich pontificate about. We've spent multiple trillions in this war on programs that have a veneer of Reich's social good by gradually debasing the respect for value, the value of personal property, the value of civil civil behavior, the value of respect and accomplishment and keeping one's word, even the value we hold for our own health. The war on poverty has created a society overpopulated with people who have an outsized outsized expectation of free provision. I think the greatest casualty of this debasement is the disrespect for the pursuit of knowledge, real knowledge. If you don't see the significance of that last sentence, consider for one second what passes as science these days. At the same time, these takers resent the hell out of those who remain at the till, providing the very wealth they exploit. The ticking class have become grasping, but easily distracted, easily medicated horses the left rides to stay in power. And the left knows this. In a show of pretense that has been churning since FDR, rich elitists have made wild theatrical display of scorn For the making class, calling them greedy and lazy. This is 180 degrees from reality. Like most of what these people dump on the takers, to want without providing is greed. To do little and expect much is laziness. And I would argue that this very point has been the operating principle behind the war on poverty. By making a show of the giving of gifts, the elite cement their power at the expense of their horses and the making class. And let me caution you here. The line between makers and takers has been blurring for years. More and more people through frustration or ignorance are becoming the proles. You still work and produce but you are slowly sinking toward the t- taking class. You're easily distracted. You don't look past your desk or your front door. When thinking of your self-interest, you let entertainment become your knowledge. Sports statistics mean more to you than the health of your 401k. This class, the proles, wear the same saddles as the takers, and they will be forced to obey along with them. But don't worry. People like Robert Reich and Klaus Schwab will find flowery phrases to make wearing your saddle seem patriotic, almost pleasant. As promised, I said last week I was working on an idea to dress up our podcast package with music. What you hear now is cute. We now have a little intro and stings and bumps, but it wasn't the idea I had. One of my favorite soundtracks is from a BBC TV show called Ground Force. It features the Black Dyke Band. Now, get your mind out of the homophobic gutter. It was previously known as the Black Dyke Mill Band. It's a brass band. So I got it into my undersized brain cavity that I'd like to feature some really fun or beautiful snippets on the soundtrack here. It would fit the personality of the podcast, especially the future videos we're going to have. So I emailed the band. On receiving the reply for one glorious half-second, I was ready to jump up and cheer. That sounds like a wonderful idea. I know the band would love it. Good, right? Huh? Then they said they can't actually provide the permission because the BBC owns the rights uh, to the music. Wah, wah, wah. Undeterred, I wrote to BBC and basically begged for the snippets. They told me they don't control permissions. That was contracted to Getty Images. I checked. There is no way a retired gunner's mate could have gotten those rights. We'd be talking about hundreds of dollars just to start the conversation and recurring payments. The thought did cross my mind before I wrote Getty to just run with it and use the music until I got the cease and desist order. But that wouldn't be right. Bloody hell. So I went tail between my legs to the place where retired gunners mates get all their audio snippets. They're nice. I, I like them. I like the snippets that we pick. But if you want a real high-quality brass band, you'll have to make P4B rich. So, do subscribe and be ready when we go paid. I keep saying it, um, that it's going to be soon, but it definitely is going to be soon. A man's got to eat. And if you're really feeling generous, you can go with the founders option. You know, when people say, hey, did you hear P4B? You can say, yes, yes, I'm a founding member. It's like being a member of a really exclusive country club founding member of the political party pooper playbook. Anyway, that's an option. Back to the RR commentaries. There's so much BS to unpack here. As I move through this intellectual and economic train wreck of an article, The task in breaking it all down into digestible chunks seems endless. Oh well, that's why they call it a series, right? I'll start today with Reich's opening statement. I wholeheartedly agree that Trump's NFT and gold checks are a riot. Anyone who purchases one of these are the suckers P.T. Barnum spoke of. There is an exception with those who are buying them knowing that Trump won't live forever. And when he eats his last Big Mac, the prices of everything Trump, as with all celebrities, will likely boom. Sell! Sell! So at least there's that. More complex NFTs and blockchain currency are slightly different creatures. NFT has real appeal to the younger tech generation, among whom I and Reich do not number. And it was born as a means of owning works of art that exist only as digits. But some are arguably quite amazing works. Would Robert argue that art isn't a social good? Is NFT art to be dismissed because the medium isn't canvas and oil? That I nor he would buy an NFT work says nothing of the actual value of the work. And who are we to criticize the transaction in any meaningful way? And like all transactions, including buying traditional art or subscribing to PBS, very popular with rich people, the buyer wants the thing being sold more than the money in his hand. Show me a single voluntary transaction that differs from that reality. Just because someone buys something that doesn't result in a cut going directly to a third party, does not make the transaction a zero anything. Digital currency even has its value to the buyer. I see them as being no more than an electronic checking account that is difficult to track. Yes, that is why criminals like them, but we're talking about legal transaction here as Reich Reich was in his piece. And in this realm, the young techies, again, are the market. I would never use Bitcoin to make a transaction, but I sure wish I saw the pet rock potential in holding some while the market went Looney Tunes over it. I would have lost not one minute of sleep over the doing of social good if I bought a thousand Bitcoin at a dollar and sold it at the peak last year. And there's two points here. The first is that people like Rush think it is their duty to extract from me to give to you. In my case, all he'd get is debt and a truck. But you see my point. The left feels entitled to tell you what you must do with your wealth. If you don't share the worldview of, say, a Robert Reich, you're somehow evil or without merit in their world. The second point is if I had bought a thousand Bitcoin, at a dollar, and sold it when it hit $62,000, I'd have gotten a whole bunch of social good out of the deal, and I would still need to eat. Now, even before Uncle Stinky got his greasy meat hooks into my $62 million, who can we safely assume would benefit from that money? First, I'll tell you true, my new accountant and new lawyer would, and they eat too. And then there will be the guy who builds my new house and his crew and his suppliers and the gas station that fuels his trucks and equipment and the material suppliers and the truckers to move them and the guys who make the nails and on and on and on. That $62 million would send shockwaves, the good kind, through my community and my state. Every purchase I would make would ripple. And yes, I would give money away. Americans are among the most generous people on the planet, and I have dozens of things I'd love to fund. But there will be a wet blanket. My county and Virginia and Uncle Stinky would come skulking around looking for their cut. I won't begrudge them the productive, efficient things they do with the money. But there is so little of that. And so much of my money would just be handed to people, getting them through to the next check and further debasing their lives in the process. Reich seems to believe that these recipients across the board are entitled to that money. But we have more than 7 million men of prime working age not participating in the job market. Where does their money come from? And if some were working under the table, you can bet they'd still be getting their cut of my Bitcoin sale from Uncle Stinky anyway. But even they have to eat, too. So, ripple, ripple. You see the point. If I say a thing has no value, that means nothing to the transactors. They will make their exchange and participate in the big pond we call the economy. Even the huge numbers of able-bodied, young- and middle-aged adult welfare sponges serve a purpose in the larger scheme of things. But that lends them no legitimacy. So at least we've dispensed with the value of Reich's opinion of other people's buying and selling, this zero-sum concept he keeps banging away at in in his article. The value of that opinion is zero. But like I said in part one, he sounds so good saying it, doesn't he? Now, don't read too much into this series. I think it's important to point out that I do not dislike Robert Reich, the person. If I were at a social gathering and struck up a conversation with the man, I think I'd find him affable and well-mannered, altogether pleasant. I don't think I've ever seen the man shit thunder on anybody. Conversely, he might find me a bit loud and flippant. Flip? Flippin'? Not sure. The purpose of this series is to debunk the economic and political myths the ivory tower of which he is a member foist on us every single day and perhaps provide you with some warnings you can provide to your kids before the universities get a hold of them and finally a warning in the first few paragraphs RR mentions FTX the intrinsic problem with FTX was the fact that it was all an elaborate con job. Idiots threw money at this fat slob. And since he had money, he had the undivided attention of our political whores in D.C. And then they all ended up looking deservedly stupid. But mark my words, in the very near future, you will be hearing the lecture from Uncle Stinky that because of FTX and the fat slob, the only digital currency we should have in the United States is the government's digital currency. This will be, of course, undiluted bullshit. Uncle's digital money can be manipulated and will be used against you if you're not a good pro. Bad pro, bad! No food for you this week!